Welcome to Airwaves, the official podcast of the Naval Air Systems Command. I'm your host, Michael Lauren Prue, and today we're on the Airwaves to talk mission focus. What does it mean to you? Joining us to answer that question is Captain Stephen Tedford, Vice Commander, Naval Air Systems Command. Sir, thank you for joining us. When you think of the phrase mission focus, what does it mean to you? Michael, mission focus is about getting back to our fundamental understanding of why we do what we do. Our mission at NAVAIR is to provide the capabilities and to sustain those capabilities for the fleet customer so that they're in a position to execute their mission. Essentially, our mission is to support their mission. But in my mind, mission focus is truly getting back to the why of what it is that we do. We understand how, we understand what we provide, but do we truly understand and remember day to day why we're doing it? It is important to understand the why behind what we're doing. So what are some of the ways we can encourage and reinforce mission focus? Michael, to me, the beginning of mission focus starts with that connection to the fleet and getting back to the fundamental understanding of what the men and women of the Navy Marine Corps team are dealing with day to day. Understanding the capabilities, not only that they have today that we're trying to sustain, but the capabilities that they need tomorrow to maintain their competitive advantage against our enemies across the globe. But getting back to the mission piece is that relationship with the fleet and understanding why we do what we do and how it supports them is where we can start in getting ourselves back into that mission focus alignment. Speaking of the competitive advantage, that's hard to maintain when our competitors are outpacing us. We hear from leadership that we need to act with a sense of urgency, increase readiness, get products to the fleet faster. So how do we incentivize urgency on our teams? I would say first by staying informed and understanding the world events. Um, and that's in, in a general professional perspective of understanding where we are and how the world is changing around us. Secondly, it goes back to my fundamental opening comments about getting back to why. From understanding why you do anything is where you can find inspiration and incentivizing the urgency to respond and to take action. Again, if with, without it, we can still produce capability. We can still struggle to produce sustainment and improve our readiness. But you can motivate a large group of people once you can get them all aligned behind the same why. To the Navy, our why is national defense. It's maintaining a dominant maritime strategy throughout the world to provide not only for the greater good of our country, but for the nation states around the world that we are aligned with. I really like that answer. So can you give us an example of urgency and mission focus in practice? Michael, yes. In my previous assignment as a program manager for PMA 251, which is the Aircraft Launch and Recovery Equipment Program Office, notably known for the uh, recent development of the advanced arresting gear and the electromagnetic aircraft launch system, both of which that are currently installed and operating on CVN 78. The challenge here was we're dealing with technology that, although was bringing existing technologies together, the actual development and test of a brand new arresting gear hadn't been done in 60 years. So in January of 2016, um, the program had been uh, in force for about 12 years uh, since Milestone B. We had been executing weighted sled testing or dead load testing at the jet car track site at Lakehurst where we actually would accelerate a dead load into the wire, into the system for collecting data. Um, but it was time to get the first manned aircraft into the runway arrested landing site 
uh, or Rawls up at Lakehurst. Now at this point in the program, obviously the program office, the test and engineering teams up at Lakehurst have been deeply involved with the program along with our uh, industry partner from the very beginning. We knew the ins and outs of the program. But now we're at a point in the phase where we need to introduce the manned flight, the manned aircraft element into test. And so now we have to bring in the test squadron, not only the test pilots, but the test engineers. We have to bring in the system engineering element here at Pax River because we have to go get flight clearances. But we're in a position where, again, we've never done this before. I mean, yes, we did 60 years ago, but there's nobody here that remembers it. Um, we didn't have the data from it anymore. And how do, we, how do we capture and analyze and understand the risks that we are taking when it truly is something new? The test squadron um, is used to testing their aircraft. That's not the system under test right now. It's the arresting gear. We had data and understanding and confidence from the program and the Lakehurst engineering and test team. But the Pax River test team and engineering hadn't been as involved up to this point. So we had to bring those organizations together. And what we did under the guidance of Ramor Gahagan, who was our NOC AD and our lead engineering commander here in Pax River, in concert with our wing commodore and the engineering components, is that we brought together at the 06 level, at the captain level, between program management, engineering, and test, we were able to get a small group together that was agile, that was also empowered, and had the authority to evaluate, understand, and accept the risk that allowed the team to get into test. And you successfully met a very urgent, very necessary fleet need. Absolutely. What would you say were those key factors that led you to success, and how did you do it? We got back to fundamentally in that core group, and I, I, I've said it already, is getting back to why. Right. Why did we need to get into test in March? Why was it important for AAG to move forward? It wasn't simply about advancing arresting gear technology. The entire CVN-78 aircraft carrier was, was resting on our ability to be successful and to get into test and collect the data. It allowed us to gain, to bring additional groups into our team who had not been a part of testing to date, but we were able to give them the same sense of why, and it allowed us to get an accelerate test and to communicate better because everybody understood what the end game was. Everybody understood now why we were doing it. We weren't just accepting risk just to accept it. There was a reason behind it, and everybody on the team started to gel behind that why. We then started to look at different and improved ways of how to get into test and how to evaluate and mitigate risk and how to take those decisions to lower levels. And people started to gain that urgency and it really became self-motivating and self-fulfilling. You've mentioned risk and risk acceptance. What barriers did you have to overcome to make this work? One of the biggest barriers in risk was, was trying to characterize what risks you were able to manage and how to mitigate those risks to an acceptable level. And acceptable is the key word. Acceptable to who? Is it acceptable to the pilot who's going to execute the test? Is it acceptable to the commanding officer of the test squadron who's responsible for the safe execution of the test plan? Is it acceptable from a systems engineering perspective? Is it acceptable to the program manager and the program office team who's ultimately responsible for the success of the overall program? That's a good point. So how did you get everyone to agree on a level of acceptance? So getting to that, and 
I would say that the ability to, to communicate clearly and to articulate the risks and differentiating between a risk and an issue and how you can put mitigations in place. It means that you're taking recommendations from all sources. You're evaluating all of them to their different levels and you're coming up with an integrated solution. It isn't that any one person has the answer. It's that as a team with trust and noble intent that everyone's trying to get to the same end game, you can get to those solutions quickly. And when they see senior leaders getting to those solutions quickly, it empowers our junior professionals to want to get to those same solutions just as quickly. So instead of just bringing the problems forward, they start to bring the problems and recommendations forward. And when you start to accept their recommendations as the path forward, it then empowers them to find the next solution. It's not always the program manager who's finding the solution and making the decision. Sometimes that my decision was to accept the recommendation from the team, understanding the risks, and if they made a mistake or if we failed, we learned. And then we move forward. How important are relationships, collaboration, and trust to the success of a team? Relationships are key in the sense that, as I mentioned, every program office, every team that we discuss within NAVAIR that's providing a capability is made up of multiple smaller groups, whether it's the program office, the contracting team, the legal team, the squadron, the wing. All of those individual teams are glued together through relationships. Yes, we have a command structure. Yes, we have instructions that tell us how to do something. But it's the relationships that you have with people on the team that actually allow you to communicate effectively, to understand the pressures that your team is under, to understand that when you may have a teammate who maybe they're having a hard time at home with a sick child or an aging parent, or there's other issues that are outside stressors that are affecting their, their work, the day will come when all of us are going to need help. And all of us are going to have a time when we need the rest of the team to step up. But it's the relationships that, under, that help us tie those things together. Relationships don't happen through email. Relationships happen by being out amongst each other face to face and having context with each other. That's how we work as human nature. Whether that relationship was with the fleet, by going to a fleet concentration site, walking the aircraft carrier, understanding what's hard, Okay, if, if you've ever been on a ship, just simply walking over all of the knee knockers and understanding the environment that our sailors are in is context. Once you have that relationship, you can much better understand their interests, their intent, and find a solution that solves not only your own, but theirs, and getting the entire team to the right solution. And you can do it quickly. It takes effort, but you can do it quickly. You're right, there's valuable perspective in being able to witness the fleet firsthand. It's huge. I've been fortunate enough to be able to, to go out on a ship and see it, and it's, it's eye-opening. It is. So switching gears slightly, NAVAIR leadership wants to empower people to think critically, try new approaches, delegate decision-making to the lowest level. How would those attributes increase speed and effectiveness? Thinking critically is about challenging your status quo and understanding not only the processes in place that we, we use, whether it's safety of flight, whether it's, it's other issues, how we produce documentation, 
legal processes, but challenging how we do things. Some of our greatest ideas come from our youngest members of our workforce because they're looking at how we do things from a fresh perspective and they ask, why do we do it that way? If our answer is, well, that's the way we've always done it, that's the wrong answer. It's when you can't explain why you do something a certain way, that should be the key that it's time to reevaluate why we do it a certain way and try to come up with that new solution that helps us find a faster way to do it. Can our next generation help us take advantage of the technologies that they find so easy to change how we approach our work? And critically thinking is taking yourself and not being quite so comfortable with the way that you approach a solution. If I approached every problem the exact same way, I'm missing the point and I'm probably going to get most of my solutions wrong because every problem is unique. The data challenges that we've been doing are perfect examples of critical thinking and new ways of doing it. And giving people an end state and a goal and motivating them to come up with a completely different way of doing it. And I will tell you, being on the receiving end of some of the outbriefs from the data challenges, the critical thinking that then occurs at the senior leadership level is, I never thought of that before. How can we implement that? How can we do more of this and get those ideas flowing? So critical thinking is getting back to taking myself and being a little bit less comfortable with my day to day. Can I improve the situation? Can I make it? And, and remembering the why, remembering the mission focus of the fleet, but can I get there in a way that's faster, that's more efficient, that may cost less, and not just do things the way we've always done them and challenging that status quo? Sir, you've shared so much awesome advice with us today and information and lots of great takeaways. So kind of wrap it up for us. If you had to pick the three most important attributes of a successful team, what would they be and why? Michael, every team is different. But I would say fundamentally, you have to start with trust. Every day you come to work, a team has to walk in the door as individuals with noble intent that the people they are working with, whether it is government, industry partners, the fleet, Congress, people inside the Beltway, are coming to, the work, coming to the work each day with the same noble intent that we're all trying to do the very best and provide the very best defense for our nation. If you can get that down in truth and you truly believe that people are trying to do their best, it takes away, it makes the communication so much easier because then you can get back to what their intent is. My second point would be all good teams, all the strongest teams know how to communicate clearly and effectively and they understand how to communicate up and down the chain of command. Okay? And that also, when I say communicate, I also include listening. So the ability to communicate is not simply saying the same message the same way to everyone. It's saying your message in the way that your audience will understand it. The, the best programs that are most successful truly have mastered the ability to communicate at all levels to the people that understand it the most. And thirdly, I would say that the, this, the, I've had the benefit of being on a lot of great teams. And I would say fundamentally, all of them had a very clear understanding of why. They understood their mission focused. 
And it wasn't because they had men in uniform or women in uniform in the program office. It's that every member of that team, contractor alike, understood why they were doing what they were doing. What was the fundamental reason for the program in the first place? The why. We know exactly how to do something. We know what we provide. But without understanding why we're doing it, it's really easy to get lost. It's really easy to lose your way between budget battles and documentation and milestones and all of the external pressures on any given program, especially the ACAT ones. But if you can fundamentally hold on to why, it doesn't matter about all that other noise. The team will keep moving and the team will become self-motivated. Sir, thanks for joining us today and sharing what mission focus means to you. And that's it for this edition of Airways. Thanks for listening.